Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Marissa here. Uh, I need to do a quick content warning for this episode. Um, We will be swearing um, a lot. It's a history of swearing, so it's really difficult to um, explain the history of swearing without using or mentioning swear words. So there will be a lot of swearing, uh, and there will also be um, some mention of sexual assault that some people might find disturbing. So if um, either of those are uh, deal breakers for you, you're going to want to skip this episode and you're definitely going to want to not listen um, in front of folks that, uh, you know, might not want to um, hear these swear words. Okay. Enjoy. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. We don't normally start off our episodes sharing personal anecdotes, um, but you know, there's a first time for everything, and I have so many of these anecdotes. So hi, my name is Marissa and I swear like a sailor. Um, I didn't realize this about myself until relatively recently in life. Um, During grad school, I met a prospective student who is now our dear friend David, who was visiting campus before attending the grad program. And we introduced ourselves and we chatted a little bit. And I quickly noticed that every time I cursed or like said a swear word, It was probably mostly shit and fuck, I would guess. Um, He flinched as if my swear words physically hurt his body and broke his brain. And I remember thinking, oh, bless this little poor Midwestern heart. (laughs) Um, The second or third time that I met him, he felt comfortable enough to ask me, is it typical for Buffalonians to swear so much? It's something I've noticed since I've been here. And I didn't know the answer because I really hadn't experienced all that much of the world, but I told him that fucking shit were just words to me. I used them in front of my mom, my grandma, even sometimes in front of my students, and they just peppered my language like any other words. Um, And he was aghast. Um, And I I suppose that casual swearing is a little bit more common in a place like Buffalo, um, which is influenced a little by big cities like Toronto and New York City, I guess. But also it has this resolutely blue collar kind of Rust Belt ethos. So I faced this issue again as my kids learned to talk. Um, I just swear in front of them indiscriminately. (laughs) Um, My logic was that if I used the words enough, they wouldn't really hold much power to them. Um, And they'd be less likely to try to shock and awe their friends by yelling out bitch and ho to a roar of giggles. So I told them, you know, not to use such words in front of teachers or anyone outside of our household. Um, 
and not to aim them at each other, like not to call each other those names because that's just unkind. Um, And it really did work. In fact, they don't even swear in front of me hardly ever, Um, even though I swear in front of them all day. Uh, My son even asks um, if he stubs his toe, Mommy, can I please use a swear word? And when I tell him yes, he yells, crap, (laughs) which I find very adorably wholesome because he could use any word, but he uses that one. Um, which I find to be hardly even a swear word, but whatever. Um, So these kinds of incidents made swearing interesting to me, and um, I always kind of wondered how words came to be swear words. So Sarah, I'm asking you a question now. Like, this is an interview podcast. (laughs) Do you know what the big six swear words are in English? Oh, gosh. Can you guess what what they are? I have to, like, count on my hand. Uh, Fuck. Yes. Damn. No, that's not on there. Really? Goddamn. Nope. <laughs> oh, wow. I know some people are like weirder about the goddamn than damn. Um, That was a big one during the Civil War era. Shit. Yes, that's on there. Yep. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know any swear <laughs> words. <laughs> I can assure you, um, you do. Uh, so, yeah, you got fucking shit. That's it so far. So what else? Think of like sex stuff dick <laughs> um it's cock but cock yeah. okay okay uh oh i don't want to say this one out loud is pussy one <laughs> no it's cunt but it's similar oh i don't like cunt either yeah. um i don't know what the other one is motherfucker no <laughs> <laughs> you're coming up with great ones cocksucker <laughs> No, um, it's arse or ass. Ass, and okay. That's funny. I like almost don't even think of ass as a swear word anymore. But I know, me neither. And piss, which I don't. Oh, I, I was going to guess that one, but I also didn't think of that really as a swear word. But I, I guess, yeah, that makes sense. And, and it's possible that these big six are changing, but we just yeah. have, we, we are not able to kind of measure that morphology yet because we're like living it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's it's cunt, fuck, cock, arse or ass, shit, and piss. Some people argue that the N-word should be one of the big six. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about why that is. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but um, hmm. suffice it to say that the, the words that have the power that a swear word has and we'll talk about what that means in a minute um this varies over time and space so the history of swear words really drives home the idea that the past is a foreign country um the most offensive and shocking thing that someone could say in 11th century england was god's bones um (laughs) But that phrase no longer holds much power over us. Um, During the Victorian age of euphemism, leg was so highly charged that it was often replaced with the word limb in polite conversation. Um, You wouldn't even talk about chicken legs. You would have to say chicken limbs. So today we're living through another linguistic shift that places racial epithets like the N-word at the top of the profane hierarchy. That's as obscene as you can get. 
And swearing is, you know, almost entirely context dependent. Swears are constantly being invented, downgraded, or escalated in our collective minds. Thousands of English language swear words are even lost to history. They're extinct and they're meaningless to us now. We don't even use them anymore at all. Still more have the same meaning, but have entirely lost their power. So what sweeping historical trends undergird the ebb and flow of obscenity? We're here to find out. This episode belongs in our series about context, which is part of our year-long mega series about the five C's of history. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons, Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We cannot thank you enough. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. First announcement is... uh. We will be swearing in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Be warned. Um, If profanity is offensive to you or if you are at work or around young children, you may want to postpone listening to this episode out loud. Um, Most scholars maintain that there is a difference between mentioning a swear word, so saying the word shit so that you can talk about its history, and using a swear word, saying shit when you stub your toe. Right. So we will definitely be doing the former. And let's be honest, at least I will probably be doing a little bit of the latter as well. Um, So note, swear words can be used literally. Um, You can say he fucked her. Right. Uh, But also sometimes they can be used as an intensifier, like holy fucking shit. Or as a figurative insult, what a motherfucker, right? You're, it's just figurative. You're not actually <laughs> saying that he fucks mothers. You're just saying um, <laughs> that he's the kind of person who would, you know? Um, so the only words that we will not be saying out loud are racial slurs because, mm-hmm. frankly, I don't want to say them and I don't want to do harm to anyone who's listening. Um, and we will refer to them as a concept, however, later on in the episode. Second, we're going to deal with English and a little bit with its Latin and Germanic proto-languages because we're an English language podcast. But one could write this history with essentially any language in the world. Even narrowing our purview down to English, there are still many words for swearing, foul, bad, or taboo language, cursing, indecency, profanity, cussing, expletives. I always hated the term cussing. I think I feel like that's a very regional Yeah, I don't term. like it either. Um, There are even more historical words for it. Vain oaths, blasphemy, etc., etc., etc. These aren't all necessarily the same thing, but they are all related. We'll do our best to identify when these are distinct concepts and when we're just using the term synonymously with swearing. Third, we won't be dealing with the legal definitions of obscenity because that is its own episode. In fact, Elizabeth has dealt with that question somewhat in her episode on Anthony Comstock, also an episode that 
I shouted out uh, in my in my uh, episode in this series as well. It's a really useful episode. Um, this episode, uh, though, revolves more around how the social, cultural, and linguistic context changes over time and space, and how this influenced the swear words used and the practice of swearing in the English-speaking world. Fourth, and perhaps... Most importantly, (laughs) this episode draws heavily on the work of other scholars. I'm just synthesizing here, right? And they actually did the hard work. Um, The book I'm most indebted to is Melissa Moore's Holy Shit, A Brief History of Swearing. Um, It piqued my interest in this topic and gave me the framework I used to write the episode. Buy it, read it, love it. It's great. But I've also done some fairly extensive additional research of secondary sources. Um, You can find citations for these in our notes. Um, A special shout out to Jeffrey Hughes. Um, (laughs) Jeffrey Hughes is long dead. I'm sure this was published in 1939. Um, An encyclopedia of swearing, the social history of oaths, profanity, foul language, and ethnic slurs in the English-speaking world. Um, because I love it and I could read it page by page forever for the rest of my life and still be happy. Um, but Hughes's book is prohibitively expensive for non-academics. Um, it's an encyclopedia and the narrative, um, nature of Moore's book is just more suitable for synthesis because Jeffrey Hughes's book is like an encyclopedia. (laughs) It's kind of like, um, the Oxford English Dictionary, if you've ever looked at that before. Uh, it's not something you can like write a podcast episode about but it's very fun uh and i loved reading it so that's all we're starting with latin expletives in ancient rome because one england was colonized by rome early in england's recorded history and two many of our current english language swear words derive from latin Melissa Moore breaks down how we can measure the obscenity of Latin words in ancient Rome, and it is just so fascinating. There are four genres that linguists use to determine obscenity. One, graffito and epigram, or vulgar, witty poems. Two, satire. Three, oratory and elegy. And four, epic. Graffiti and epigrams contain plenty of obscenity, just as they do today. Satire contains some. Oratory and elegy is highly unlikely to be obscene, and epic poetry will only contain the very purest of Latin language. So using this uh, hierarchy of genres, one can measure the degree of obscenity that each term achieved in the Roman world. For example, here is one of Marshall's epigrams. May I die, Priapus, if I am not ashamed to use obscene and improper words. But when you, a god without shame, display your balls to me in all openness, I must call a cunt a cunt and a cock a cock. Scholars can look at this epigram and pick out likely obscene words, right? Balls, cunt, cock, and search for them in satire, oratory, elegy, and epic poetry. If they do not appear in oratory or epic, but they appear rarely or sometimes in satire, then we can be sure that these words are obscene or were obscene at the time. Um, Elegies like those written by Ovid um, can be sexually suggestive, but not vulgar or obscene. So when they dealt with sex acts, they would use euphemistic language, which tells us that, um, you know, what terms were kind of spicy or coarse, but not necessarily obscene. So using this hierarchy of genres, scholars have determined ancient Rome's top 10 swears. (laughs) Um, 
Melissa Moore calls these the Big Ten. Uh, half of them are familiar to us today as run-of-the-mill profanity. So cunis, which is cunt, futuo, which is to fuck, mentula, which is cock, coolis, which is ass, and <laughs> caco or keiko, which is to shit. Cunis and cunt not only look similar, cunis was used much in the same way as cunt is used today. There is some evidence that it was used as just a regular word, the most direct way of referring to a vagina or vulva by plebes. Apartment buildings in Pompeii bear the following graffiti of ordinary Romans. Chorus cunum lingit, or chorus licks cunt, and Iucundus cunum lingit rusticae, or jacundus licks the cunt of rustica. But there is also evidence that Kunis could pack the same offensive punch as See You Next Tuesday does today, especially when employed by patrician authors against respectable women. For example, Roman poet Marshall wrote, quote, Why do you pluck your aged cunt, Lygia? Why stir up the ashes in your tomb? Such elegances befit girls, but you cannot even be reckoned an old woman anymore. Believe me, Lygia, that is a pretty thing for Hector's wife to do, not his mother. You are mistaken if you think this is a cunt when it no longer has anything to do with a cock. So, Lygia, for very shame, don't pluck the beard of a dead lion. (laughs) Damn. I know. So, um... Melissa Moore points out that Marshall could have used other, more delicate words reserved for respectable women like genitalia or pudenda, but he chooses cunt because it amplified the humiliation he wishes to inflict on his subject. He thinks this woman is not acting her age. She's removing her pubic hair as if she is a young and sexually active woman and not the elderly sexless woman that he wants her to be. Some Romans even use the word cunt figuratively, as is often the case today. Um, another piece of graffito on a Pompeii building reads, quote, Here I bugger Rufus, dear to blank. Despair, you girls, arrogant cunt, farewell. End quote. So as a non, as a non, the blank is just, it's unreadable. Uh, as, or, or damaged, right? Um, so as a non-specialist, I took this as something akin to, here I boned the fuckboy Rufus. See you later, you arrogant cunt, right? So (laughs) written by a woman. That's what I was thinking. Um, It uses cunnus figuratively to refer to a guy who's a jerk and not to like a vulva or a vagina. But Melissa Moore and scholars much more informed than me have interpreted this scrawling as a taunting note to Pompey's women by a man who has decided um, to only have sex with men from now on. Something more like, here, I butt-fucked Rufus. Sorry, ladies, I know you'll miss me. See you later, cunts, end quote, if you were going to translate it into today's words. Um, So they are, of course, uh, correct, uh, these scholars, because bugger referred uh, most often to anal sex between men and still would a millennium later. Um, But the figurative use still holds up. Since the graffito writer spoke of one figurative cunt and not swearing off all cunts, meaning swearing off all vaginas, right? So he's using it figuratively like, see you later, cunt, right? 
um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the English word cunt does not come from the Latin word cunnus, even though they do look similar and mean the same thing. There's no record of cunt appearing in the English language until the 13th century, which was 800 years after the collapse of the Roman Empire and the disintegration of Roman Britain. Instead, etymologists have traced cunt back to the Proto-Germanic word kunton, meaning womb or uh, essence. So the similar appearance, pronunciation, and meaning is just a coincidence because linguistics is wild. The Roman versions of shit and piss are also very similar to their modern English counterparts. Um, Vulgar and unpleasant, but not obscene like See You Next Tuesday really is, right? Um, The Roman futuo is a little trickier. It's often used similarly to how it is in modern day fuck. Um, In one Pompeii brothel, someone scrawled on the wall, hic ego puelas multas futui. Here I have fucked many girls. While another wrote, hic ego cum veni futui, dendi rundi domai. I came here and fucked, then went home. End quote. (laughs) So, um... They're relatively benign, though not particularly polite statements of fact. Um, They're not aggressive, nasty insults that we often see in modern English when we use the word fuck. Think about it when we see the word fuck, there's often this kind of moralizing implication of promiscuity, um, such as he or she fucks everything that moves, right? Um, Not so in the Roman context. But similar to our current context, there was a certain ambiguity of consent. So in modern parlance, the word is often used to describe a self-satisfying act that is done to someone, right? Rather than an act that two people are participating in, like as opposed to making love or whatever. Similarly, in the Roman world, futuo was something that only men did. It was something that was done to women, Um, This use of the word feels somewhat familiar in our similarly patriarchal society, but it's really difficult for modern humans to comprehend pre-Christian morality. So in the Roman context, fucking and being fucked were completely human and acceptable activities in a way that they were not in Christendom. It's important not to overemphasize the similarities between ancient Roman sexuality and modern sexuality. If one were to travel back in time, ancient Roman society would be in many ways unrecognizable to them. Christianity is one way, and we'll come back to that soon, but there are also more subtle ways that Roman society diverges from ours, and swear words are a really great access point for those. This is demonstrated by the second half of ancient Rome's Big Ten, Landica, or Clit, Verpa, or penis with the foreskin pulled back, so either an erect penis or a circumcised penis, pedico or to bugger, irumo, which is to defile a man by forcing him to perform fellatio, and fellow or to suck. Sure, these words are recognizably spicy or vulgar to us, but I don't think that they would come up as particularly accessible swear words today. When you get a paper cut, you're very unlikely to yell clit or boner in the same way that you might scream fuck or shit. 
So what gives? Why were these swear words so obscene in ancient Rome, especially since sex was not particularly scandalous in the Roman world? And it wasn't, but injuries to masculinity were scandalous. So the use of futuo gives us a bit of a clue. Remember, men fuck and women are fucked. But this is less about gendered sexual morality and more about dominance and control. Romans ascribed to a model of masculinity called priapic masculinity after the Greek god Priapus. Um, Priapus had a massive permanent erection, and he used it to penetrate women, men, children, and anyone, really. Um, But he did so for more than just sexual pleasure. Priapus sought to dominate and control his sexual conquests. So for most of Roman society, sex was about power. Moore shares this Roman poem to illustrate this, quote, I warn you, boy, you will be buggered. Girl, you will be fucked. A third penalty awaits the bearded thief, end quote. There was no understanding of homosexuality or heterosexuality or pedophilia. Um, Women, men, and boys were all just different sexual preferences within the normal Roman range. This is because all three could be dominated. The penetrator's role was similar irrespective of who they were penetrating. The third penalty in this poem was understood by Romans to mean irumatio. Irumatio refers to the act of forcing someone to perform oral sex. This is something that would have been understood as acceptable by the person receiving the forced oral sex. They were dominating their partner as a virile Roman man should. The humiliation belonged entirely to the person who was being orally raped, especially if that person was a grown man or an upper class boy who was expected to grow into a virile Roman man himself. Because to be penetrated by a man, especially without one's consent, was to be dominated and Roman men were supposed to dominate, not be dominated. So one of the most offensive obscenities someone could hurl at a Roman man was to threaten irumatio. It challenged his masculinity and subverted the hierarchies that upheld Roman society. Similarly, calling someone a philater was equally as insulting. In much the same way, Romans found conolingus to be absolutely repulsive, the female equivalent of irumatio, because it gave the woman a dominating role. They understood it as a woman, quote, fucking a man in his mouth or the man being dominated and not a man fucking a woman in a different way than is, you know, typical sort of um, penetrative sex. Being a buggerer was also a humiliating insult to a Roman man, again, you know, um, because it was passive. But according to Moore, it did not hold the same power as the oral sex versions, Iromatio and Conolingus, because the Romans were particularly disgusted by oral sex, while anal sex was decidedly less shocking. One interesting thing that scholars have discovered deals with Latin's coarse, but not necessarily obscene words. So vaginae, um, which means sheath, Conolingus, which means cunt liquor, vulva, which means womb, and fellatio, which means sucking. So interestingly, um, these vulgar Latin words have come to serve as proper, maybe even scientific terms for sexual organs or acts. 
And my question is, WTF, why? <laughs> how did this, how did these vulgar Latin words come to mean mm. proper English words, right? Sure. So Moore explains that during the Georgian and Victorian eras, folks were so squeamish about sexuality that when it was necessary to refer to those things in scientific or educational settings, speakers coded the vulgar terms in Latin. So instead of saying cunt or even womb, heaven forbid, um, they would use the Latin vaginae or vulva. And this makes sense, right? Because um, the folks who were most likely to use these terms in a legitimate way um, were scholars who would have learned Latin as part of their regular training. Um, The more vulnerable people who uh, could likely not handle these inflammatory concepts and needed to be protected from it, you know, according to them, were women, children, and the uneducated or poor plebes, you know, um, they would not have known Latin. So it was like, oh, we're going to protect these vulnerable people by instead of saying womb, and then that gets them thinking about a vagina, we'll just say uh, vulva, and they're not going to know what that means because they don't know Latin. So this Latin coding was a way for educated people in the know to discuss terms that might otherwise sexually arouse lesser beings than themselves. Again, heaven forbid. (laughs) So um, over time, um, very direct, even vulgar terms for sexual organs and acts uh, were transformed into proper English words for the same. Now, we could go on and on about Roman swears forever. Uh, I think it's super fascinating. But we want to change context so we can fully demonstrate how context informs obscenity. The Roman world generally, and Roman Britain specifically, was forever changed by the introduction of Christianity. Melissa Moore traces the way that the Old Testament establishes the importance of swearing to monotheism. Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God, initially had to compete with dozens, if not hundreds, of other gods in a largely polytheistic world. One way that Yahweh achieved preeminence above other gods was by emphasizing the importance of swearing loyalty to him. While many gods existed harmoniously in the polytheistic framework, the Yahweh of the Old Testament was a jealous god who saw exclusivity with the Jews. He demanded that they circumcise their boys as an oath to their enduring loyalty. He also asked that they swear to him to cement their loyalty to him over other gods. This brought into modern parlance the idea of swearing, meaning swearing to God or making an oath. Vain oaths, or taking the Lord's name in vain, as I think I always heard it as a kid, um, referred to oaths or swearing that people made that were unserious. For example, it was correct and good to swear to God if one was telling the truth about a serious matter of great import. But if you were swearing to God that you were super annoyed with a loud neighbor or swearing to God that you're going to go to the market to pick up food, then those are vain. You know, they're like useless or unserious oaths. The Old Testament warns against the misuse of oaths, but it's less concerned with obscenity. There are plenty of shits and pisses and whores. Um, Sexual terms are more likely to be euphemized in the Old Testament. So hand was used in place of genitals, for example. Member uh, or flesh were used in place of penis. Um, But the bathroom words were out in full force in the Old Testament. The bathroom words. Oh, my God. (laughs) The New Testament transformed this approach because Jesus Christ often told his followers not to swear at all. 
Most folks have interpreted this as don't swear unless you have to, while others, like the Quakers, believe that Christ means what he says, no swearing at all. The don't swear unless you have to camp developed because swearing or taking oaths became indispensable to medieval society as it developed after the fall of Rome. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But Lollards and Quakers believed that all forms of swearing were forbidden by Christ and and continue to still believe that to this day. Quakers came under fire for this many times because they refused to swear on the Bible when testifying in court, among other disruptive uh, refusals. So the New Testament also omits the bathroom word obscenity, um, opting for more polite terms like defecate and urinate when needed. The New Testament even restricts the euphemistic usages for sex that were employed in the Old Testament. The New Testament sets the standard that, quote, obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, so not only sexually or excrementally obscene words, but also pointless gossip, um, could be called careless or idle chatter. The idea was that the obscene, silly, and vulgar talk would lead to obscene, silly, or vulgar deeds, sins. This New Testament approach to swear words became incredibly influential throughout all of medieval Christendom. The medieval standards of propriety, however, might surprise you. Moore tells the story of a monk named Aldred, who, in 965 CE, translates the Bible from Latin into Old English. Aldred makes some choices that appear strange to us today, such as, quote, thou shalt not sard or fuck another man's wife in Matthew 527, or ye shall not offer to the Lord any beasts whose bollocks are broken such as in Leviticus 22:24. Another version translated by John Wycliffe in the 1320s reads, "The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt on the part of the body by which turds are shat out," which is Deuteronomy 28:27. One more from the Wycliffe Bible, quote, "The Lord smote the people of Azoth and its coasts in the more private or secret part of their arses." 1 Samuel 5, 6. There were many other options for them to choose, ones that might seem more polite to us now. But there was no need. Why? Because bollocks, sard, this earlier version of the word fuck, and even cunt were not actually obscene in medieval Europe. Neither were ass, shit, or piss. Surprised? I know some of you might be. This is because we often project Victorian or 19th century norms backward onto earlier time periods. The assumption is that if the word leg was too spicy for the Victorians, then their forebears must have been even more uptight. We think of norms as linear, becoming increasingly relaxed as the years passed. It begins with buttoned-up, self-loathing old biddies and slowly opens up until we arrive at midriff-bearing zennials wearing their pajamas to brunch and using the word cunt to mean cool. But that's simply not true. These kinds of things are more cyclical, not linear. And it makes a lot of sense if you consider the world that medieval Europeans lived in. Most Europeans lived in hovels as a family or in great halls with dozens of people under one roof. There were no separate sleeping quarters or marital bed. Um, people defecated, urinated, and had sex without privacy. They spit, burped, spilled, vomited, and farted indiscriminately. These events were commonplace out in the open in a way that they aren't today. 
Historian Ruth Mazzocaris writes, quote, medieval people would be much less likely to see representations of sex acts, but they would be much more likely than modern ones to witness the actual performance of those acts, end quote. So all of the direct ways to refer to those things, shitting, pissing, fucking, sarding, swiving, um, they were unremarkable words. They did not have the power to make people's faces blush or their pulse race. They were direct ways to refer to ordinary realities in the world. These words were only vulgar in the sense that they were the vernacular, or common rather than the learned. Sure, fancy Latin-speaking theologians might know alternate words for these things, um, or maybe not, based on Aldred's and Wycliffe's Bibles, um, but 99% of people only knew vernacular words for these things. Not only was the medieval period resolutely practical and lacking the concept of privacy, it was also a very unpretentious time where most folks were commoners and content with their plain commoner language. Moore's demonstration of this is genius. She relays the proper names uh, for lots of England's flora and fauna um, during the medieval period. Quote, a medieval pond would have looked the same, but sounded different. There would have been a shit row in there fishing, a windfucker flying above, our smart and cunt whore hugging the edges of the pond, and piss a bed amongst the grass. If you'd have brought a picnic, perhaps to eat under an open arse tree, uh, piss mares, ants, probably would have started to crawl on your food. These are not obscene or otherwise bad words. Shitrow was the common, ordinary name for heron. Pissabed, that for dandelion, and so on. Heron comes from the French, uh, the nominal si verbal, uh, a poem from the early 1300s that translates words and phrases from Anglo-Norman into English. Um, it renders un bevy de heron, which is a bevy of heron, as a heap of shitrows. <laughs> It's so ridiculous. <laughs> I know. Um, so, and then this is this is the end of the quote that Melissa Moore says, which is genius, which tells you exactly what the inflection of the book is like. The translation goes some way toward explaining the centuries-long British sense of cultural inferiority. <laughs> I, I get quote. it. I, I yeah. see it. <laughs> A heap of shit rose. <laughs> One medical treatise published around 1400 CE reads like this, quote, in women, the neck of the bladder is short and is made fast to the cunt. We can tell from looking at Latin to English vocabularies how the Latin words we discussed earlier were translated into English. One vocabulary printed in 1500 defined the Latin vulva as, in English, a cunt. Another one from the 10th century defined the Latin word for buttocks as ass muscle. I can't say arse. Arse muscle and the Latin word for anus as arsehole. In 1509, Oxford Don John Stanbridge wrote a vocabulary treatise intended for young boys in school. He tells them polite, rather than vulgar, words to use to describe body parts that they may occasionally need to refer to. In doing so, he tells us what terms the boys were used to employing for the job. Quote, hic podex for an arsehole, Heck urina for piss. Heck penis for a man's yard. I like that. A yard. Stanbridge instructs his boys to refrain from using oaths such as by God's bones. But he seems to be OK with schoolboy's favorite insult. Turn in your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> 
Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I was I was thinking when you were talking about the lack of privacy, that's what came to my mind was the Canterbury Tales, where everybody's just like fucking everywhere. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is another example of the medieval world's comfort with the sexual and scatological words that serve as our obscenities today. Quote, not worth a turd and shitten arse and coilons, which is another word for balls, uh, appear everywhere in the text. Chaucer also uses swive a lot. Swive and sard were replaced with fuck after 1500. Quote, for on thy bed thy wife I saw him swive, one character tells another. The moral of this tale is recorded as, never tell any man in your life how another man has dight his wife. Dight was a very slightly more polite way to say fuck. More equates it to today's use of the word screw. (laughs) Not very polite, but maybe not as bad as fuck. Right. It's like it's not not a swear word necessarily. Yeah, but like a naughty word or Mm -hmm. a vulgar word. Vulgar, yeah. So one of my favorite parts of Moore's book and the reason why I love the Jeffrey Hughes Encyclopedia of Swear Words um, because this is basically what the whole thing is, um, is the extinct cuss words. As we already mentioned, sard and swive fall by the wayside after 1500 replaced by fuck. Kieker was a rude word for clitoris. One 1425 medical treatise gives the word tentigo for the clitoris, but adds that, quote, lewd folk call it the kieker and the cunt, end quote. So kieker must have been fairly vulgar, meaning uneducated, but not particularly shocking. Pintle, tarse, and yard um, are all medieval English words for the penis. Um, And aside here, for some reason, these words all sound to me like they mean penis. I I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, Yard? Absolutely. Like, if I heard somebody talk about a man's yard today, like, I would absolutely know. Yeah. And same with pintle. For some reason, I just picture, I don't know why. (laughs) Um, So we could go on forever, but but we'll leave it there. Um, Read Moore's book or Hughes' encyclopedia if you are interested in uh, extinct swear words, because it's the best. All of this is not to say that there was no such thing as bad language. Moore is clear to say that sexual words may have been slightly more taboo than scatological words at some point in medieval Christendom because they were preoccupied with avoiding sin. Some folks were of the mind that speaking about sex in coarse ways might tempt someone to fornicate. One 15th century Christian pamphlet describes all the ways that a medieval person's mouth could get them into trouble. Quote, these are the sins of the mouth intemperance or unlawful tasting, eating or drinking, idle jangling or chattering, words of harlotry speaking, God's holy name in vain taking, lies, false promises, vain swearing, forswearing, slandering, scorning, banning, cursing, backbiting, discord sowing, false deeming or false judging, wrong upbraiding, secrets or advice foolishly discovering, Chiding, threatening, boasting, false witness bearing, evil counsel giving, flattering, evil deeds praising, good deeds perverting, Christ or his word or any of his servants scorning, slandering or despising, unskillful pleading in a court case, vain arguing, foolishly laughing, scornful mocking, proud and presumptuous speaking, nice and jolly chanting, kind of 
merry singing, uh, or to sing more for the praising of men than of God. Clearly, the medieval world was full of insults in ways that you could speak and get in trouble, right? Um, But the question that I have then is how did medieval people insult each other if the words we currently use as insults were just ordinary words for them? Um, Moore argues that medieval insults were sexual, like whore for women, and sometimes sexual for men, cuckold, whoreson, or whoremonger. Note, um, the sexual insults of men revolve around the sexual activities of the women in their lives, right? Their wives, mothers, or putative prostitutes that they are pimping out or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the male sexual insults, of anything, emphasize their passiveness towards sexuality, not like something that they're doing right. So, for example, they're not being insulted by being called a rapist or something, um, referring to their sexual misdeeds. It's like they mm-hmm. allow their women to go have sex with other people mm-hmm. or whatever. That's the that's the insult, right? Mm-hmm. But if you really wanted to insult a medieval man, all you need to do is call him a thief, a robber, a knave, or dishonest. These words were not themselves obscene or words that make you take notice and blush. They were just malicious to direct at a peer. Moore calls them medieval fighting words. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to be like the 19th century person here, but this is, it's so interesting to me how the um, the con- the context changes, the words change, but the insult behind them stays sort of the same, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, during the 19th century, the version of calling someone a knave for, like, a-, a guy during the Civil War era would be a puppy. Like, you literally would duel someone if they called you a puppy mm-hmm. um, or a black puppy, a black Republican puppy. Like, that was what my master's thesis was about, um, <laughs> were those kinds of masculinized insults, right? One of my favorite um, court martials was for a guy who, like, got really mad at all his officers and was, like, screaming all these obscenities at them. And one of them was that he called him a damned whorehouse pimp. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like now, among, now it just makes us laugh. Among many other things, <laughs> it just but, makes us, laugh. yeah, like a, right. A, you damned whorehouse pimp just sounds so like stilted and silly. Anyway, right. Well, I wanted to mention one thing: fighting words. Um, so I don't get to it because we ended the episode before we get to the 20th century. But fighting words becomes a legal standard um, in the American in American jurisprudence, mm. um, where like if if someone like if you called someone uh, a motherfucker or something, mm-hmm. or if you, you know, called them, yeah, a whoremonger or whatever, um, and they punched you, it was actually, like, okay for them mm-hmm. to punch you because mm-hmm. you insulted them with fighting words. Right. So fighting words actually does become, like, this legal category, but that's for another episode. Yeah. No, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, even today, even though that wouldn't be legally acceptable, right? Like, that assault is still assault but there's a certain understanding that like there are certain things that you that if you say them to someone it's almost understood that like there could be blowback as i'm sure we'll right. you know continue to talk about during this episode and if you like use a like a racial epithet for example that that actually can like get you more time right. in prison if if that accompanies some kind of right. assault right. or whatever yeah. mm-hmm. you know 
or homophobic language or that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what did make medieval people clutch their proverbial pearls? The swearing of vain or unserious or faulty oaths. Vain oaths shocked medieval people to their core in a similar way to how you might shock your sweet grandmother if you called her a dumb fucking cunt. Their ears perked up, their hearts raced, and their cheeks blushed. Remember, oaths had come to serve as the backbone of medieval European society. Insincere, vain, or broken oaths threatened the foundations of their world and the order in their lives. That's why it was so important that oaths be sworn to God. When someone swore an oath to God, they were demanding God's attention and asking him to witness their oath to hold them accountable to their promise. The idea was that if God served as your witness and you broke an oath or were swearing a false oath, then only God had the knowledge and the power to strike you down. Oath-making and God's assurance of the strength of that oath made the medieval world go round. This is why making a vain oath was so offensive. If you, quote, swore to God that you didn't eat the last cookie, but you did, then you both invoked God's name and attention for something silly, a cookie-related incident, and you asked him to back you up in a lie. You were damaging the fabric of medieval society and insulting your creator. Even worse would be swearing by parts of God's body. Moore describes a typical oath as the oath taker figuratively tapping God on the shoulder and asking him to witness your promise. If you swore, God damn it, you were tapping the creator of Mm -hmm. all things, right? So the creator of the world, the reason you're here, on the shoulder to tell him, damn you, right? And so that's, which is like kind of ballsy right if you think about it um but if you swore an oath by god's teeth or by god's bones you were physically endangering injuring or destroying god's body this was especially true if your oath was in vain or if you later broke it therefore the most obscene things that you could say in medieval england were by god's blood or by god's arms or by god's nails Hmm. One theologian wrote that swearing such oaths would, quote, rend God limb from limb and are worse than Jews, for they rend him only once. And such swearers rend him every day anew. And the Jews didn't break his bones, but they break his bones and each limb from the other and leave none whole, end quote. Of course, we have to also include some anti-Semitism because it wouldn't be medieval otherwise. Got to get that in there. This, of course, sounds completely foreign to us, but a few generations ago, it may have actually made a little more sense. I mean, I know that I have family members that might use terms like gosh darn in an attempt to avoid using the Lord's name in vain. But even those folks would probably find it bizarre that swearing by God's body, I mean, did he even have a body, would have been um, more offensive than cunt or shit. This is what a healthy appreciation of historical context can do for us, provide us with the ability to understand the ever-changing words, meanings, and connotations within our language. Sarah, doesn't this make you want to go back in time and shout out, Christ on a cracker, to some medieval people and see what they do? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And yes, I do say Jesus Christ on a cracker all the time. (laughs) 
would make that would like that's that's the first my first order of business when I'm able to time travel is to do that. Yes. <laughs> um. So a fun point about medieval words. Um. Most of the words used to describe wealthy and elite medieval people, like noble or gentle, have come to mean good or moral. While words that were used to describe the lower classes took on negative connotations. So a villain, for example, was an unfree tenant, but it becomes a villain as in like a superhero villain, right? Um, churl, uh, this used to mean a non-noble person, but it has come to mean mean-spirited. Um, knave originally is just a boy child, uh, but it comes to mean scoundrel. Uh, wretch originally just meant an exile, uh, but came to mean a despicable person. And harlot originally means a uh, male beggar, but it comes to mean a whore or a prostitute. Um, so I just think it's really interesting that the different, uh, I don't know, socioeconomic mm-hmm. or class differentiations that, it, you know, that the fancy people, their words end mm-hmm. up meaning good. And then poverty ends up meaning Mm -hmm. bad you know i mean it's not surprising but it's just interesting Mm -hmm. that it's that clear cut absolutely these changes in the meaning of medieval words coincided with the renaissance interestingly this was also a time when our modern understanding of obscenity came into being one of the important events that sparked this sea change was the protestant reformation this event contributed to a decline in the power of oaths Some Protestant sects rejected oath-taking as non-biblical. In England, the Protestant Reformation was incredibly politicized, and the country was plunged into successive reverses in the national religion. Henry VIII broke with Rome and made himself the head of the Church of England, a Protestant nation in name. His son, Edward VI, was raised a good Protestant and in the thrall of other devout Protestant counselors. Upon his death, the throne went to Mary I, who outlawed Protestantism and reinstated Catholicism. But several years later, Elizabeth I ascended to the throne and reinstated Protestantism again. Just a whole lot of swinging back and forth. (laughs) It's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess. So in an attempt to endure uh, in this kind of tumultuous climate, the English faithful learned philosophical tricks such as equivocation, which allowed them to outwardly swear one oath, but internally swear another. Kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back when you make a promise or whatever. Um, So still more English faithful were coerced by the state or by friends and family into denying their faith to preserve themselves during these tough times. So these conditions essentially robbed oath-taking of its power in English society. Obviously, oaths still remain in today's society somewhat. Americans, for example, swear on the Bible and courts every day. Um, But they gradually lost their power to shock and offend in the English-speaking world. In addition to the Protestant Reformation, there were also deeper, more systemic social changes transforming English society. Norbert Elias wrote about this in a book called The Civilizing Process. He wrote that medieval society had a low threshold for shame and very little separation between one person's body and another's. This changed in what he called the civilization process, which resulted in a growing concern over boundaries, better control of bodily functions, the rise of private spaces, and a preoccupation with etiquette. 
This process happened towards the end of the medieval period and was complete by the end of the early modern period. We know this because homes started to separate living and sleeping quarters. Family units shrunk to the nuclear families that we are familiar with today, and defecating and urinating became confined to private spaces or privies. Most importantly, it increased humans' threshold for shame. Ah, the Protestants are very good at this. (laughs) Then again, so are the Catholics, but I mean, you know, Christians (laughs) in general. Uh, Folks were no longer fornicating in public, burping, farting, and spitting in polite company, or defecating into a pot in the corner of the room while friends were chatting a few feet away. Moore lays out several other reasons for the Renaissance's transition to a more modern conception of obscenity. Capitalism is one of them, but we're going to leave it there for now. Um, Yeah, she has like five or six kind of main reasons, and I'm just going to talk about a couple. Um, So you may be wondering how we know that many words became obscene during the Northern Renaissance, which is about the 16th century. Um, One answer is that the authors began euphemizing them or censoring them within their books. One dictionary defined the Latin vulva as a woman's wicket. Remember, a medieval vocabulary defined it as, in English, a cunt, right? So we can already see a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so we begin to see a hierarchy of polite vocabulary emerging during the Renaissance. High society strove to develop polite or scientific words for inflammatory topics, like mammary for breast. Um, these were at the top of the hierarchy. Um, they're used by the most educated people or by reasonably educated people in respectable settings. And then there were words like Doug or Pap, which meant breasts, which were ordinary and vulgar, akin to today's boob, maybe, mm-hmm. um, but not obscene. Fancy men probably use these words in familiar settings with close friends at a pub or at a coffee shop. Commoners probably use these words as the most direct way of communicating about bodily functions. Um, but they weren't appropriate for polite company, medical conferences, or formal dinner parties. These kinds of words sat in a middle level, their level of appropriateness depending on the familiarity, respectability, and education level of the folks involved. Lastly, there were the vile, obscene words used by drunkards in the street or by gangs of preteen boys trying to impress new initiates. Um, These were words like tits as well as cunt or cock. Um, These were shocking, stimulating, and very naughty, much like they are today. So it's really not until the Northern Renaissance that a recognizable-to-us system of obscenity emerges. The main reason why this is the time when obscenity becomes familiar to us is because this is also the time when social stratification and class formation becomes familiar to us. Just as a tiered system of obscenity forms, a tiered system of society forms as well, with fancy aristocrats at the top, laboring or poor folks at the bottom, and the middling sort in between. Unsurprisingly, the lowest and most vile obscenities became associated with the lowest and most vile classes. While fancy elites shoulder higher expectations of their etiquette, this makes coarse language or vulgar language completely unacceptable at that level. But don't be fooled. This scheme is certainly more recognizable to us today than the medieval or Roman one, but there were still differences. For example, Privies or toilets were often still communal. Uh, Benches with holes cut out to seat seven or eight people at a time. So using the facilities was still, for many, a social event. 
Perhaps this is why sex words became obscene more quickly than bathroom words, which remained ordinary and lowbrow or sort of middle tier, but not shocking and vile like the lowest tier. Um, I have someone just um, shared with me a photograph from the Civil War of a, a bunch of soldiers squatting in a circle with their pants pulled down and they're all just like shitting outside in a circle. <laughs> It just reminds me of that. (laughs) Yeah, it's so crazy. Um, So even uh, sexual shame was situational in a way that it wouldn't be in later times and in a way that seems very foreign to us. Um, Giovanni della Casa, for example, wrote in his treatise on manners about the Renaissance custom of honoring one's inferior, so like a servant or a vassal of some sort, um, by allowing them to glimpse one's balls. (laughs) Right, just give them a peek. Um, though feelings of shame around sex and excrement were growing in this period, Renaissance Englishmen did not feel the shame in front of inferiors like servants. They couldn't function if they did. Think about it. Who was changing your sex sheets, hearing your sex screams, emptying your piss and shit out of your chamber pots each morning, mm-hmm. right? Um, folks couldn't afford to feel shame in front of servants or other inferiors. So um, at this point, shame was reserved for social equals or betters. But these lines were not yet hardened. Renaissance dictionaries contain both rude and polite versions of bathroom words in their vocabularies and dictionaries. For example, the Latin caco was just as often translated as to shit as it was translated to um, a desire to go to stool, right? Which is much more polite, akin to use the restroom. Um, Piss and urine were both used, uh, one as more direct and lowbrow in that middle tier, and then the other as a more polite and scientific alternative upper tier. One might think of the Renaissance as uh, a period of transition, right? Um, The medieval world of shocking oaths had faded away, but it was still not entirely clear what would replace it. Enter what Moore calls the age of euphemism, which for her includes the 18th and 19th centuries. At the beginning of the 18th century, the hazy hierarchical rules surrounding foul language remained. Some spicy words held a new obscene power, while others remained a part of ordinary language. By the end of the 19th century, the situational shame of the Renaissance was transformed into intense taboos applying to all bodily functions, excremental and sexual. Sex and shit words disappeared swiftly from polite society. So how did this happen? How did this change, which began in the Renaissance context, accelerate and end with this maddeningly chaste Victorian world? I say maddeningly chaste because it's maddening to me, but you probably love it. No. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's interesting to me. I know that we are, I don't want to go over time, but it's interesting to me how there is, there is something about that maddeningly chaste thing that is still very appealing. I mean, this is like romance novels are set in this world because you can have the stark contrast between someone who's very buttoned up and then and very proper and very careful. Right. And then stripping all of that away and like getting it on. Um, mm-hmm. There's something right. that I yeah, think that's the dramatic part of it. Yeah. I think a lot of people find that very hot and I am one of them. <laughs> um 
So the less these words appeared in daily life, the more their shock factor was amplified. Imagine a sheltered child raised in a genteel household that used euphemisms to refer to all things bodily and unpleasant. Then imagine that as a teen, um, this this child, let's say it's you, you know, you hear some youths refer to a girl as a fucking filthy cunt, right? You may not know exactly what it means. In fact, you definitely wouldn't, right? Your mom would have instructed you on how to be a proper young woman, um, disguising vulgar, uncouth, and vile concepts with clever euphemisms. Pissing wasn't even urinating. It was making water, powdering your nose. Um, The jake, which is a vulgar word for the privy, um, would not have even crossed your mother's mind. Latrine probably would have been even too coarse for her. She would have much preferred place of easement or house of office right um euphemism so abstract that a foreign visitor might not even know what you meant by them right um so even though the meanings of fucking and cunt um, may have been a mystery to you you'd know that they were forbidden in the world that you knew um perhaps you would even get into trouble just for overhearing it right um and you probably wouldn't go about your business and never think of it again um if you're anything like me your curiosity would probably drive you wild um and this is what gave obscenity its power with this power came new ways of using obscene words During the medieval period and Renaissance, English swear words had been used for their literal meaning, right? To shit was to defecate, to fuck was to copulate, etc. But during the age of euphemism, um, which maybe we can even call it obscenity's birthplace, uh, we witnessed the transfiguration of words previously used for literal meaning, shit and fuck, etc. To obscenities used figuratively, like what a fucking asshole. Note, um... The human you're talking about is neither copulating nor an actual sphincter, right? You're using it figuratively Um, or even as intensifiers, right? Fucking hell, you know? Note, the fucking just accentuates the hell. It's not a normal hell. It's a fucking hell, right? But this has nothing to do with the sex act, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So these are obscenities and these are the, the obscenities that we're familiar with. During the 18th and 19th centuries, swearing came to be baked into the strict class and gender hierarchies that characterized the period. Class and gender expectations amplified shame surrounding sexuality and excrement. For example, a Victorian woman would have been more embarrassed by urinating in front of a man than a Victorian man would have been by urinating in front of a woman. Likewise, a distinguished member of parliament or Congress in the United States would keep a larger household with a marital bed, thus affording him the luxury of privacy during sex, while an impoverished chimney sweep might sleep five to a bed in his filthy tenement housing. The chimney sweep, not being able to afford the luxury of privacy during sex, probably felt less shame regarding the sex act. Language worked in much the same way. Respectable Georgian and Victorian women would have avoided coarse language so as to protect not only their social prestige, but also their femininity. A poor female hawker of apples, however, she would have yelled and used coarse language that would have not only made her lower class, but also less feminine, at least in the eyes of a Georgian or Victorian lady. 
Georgian and Victorian men would have been afforded much more freedom regarding their language, but there were still class-based expectations. A well-educated MP living in Westminster probably used delicate language in professional settings and in front of women, but he may have thrown around a few cocks, cunts, and fucks in the gentlemen's club with his university buddies. Poor men did not face the same situational self-censorship. They may have curbed their tongues a bit in front of their social superiors or their mothers-in-law, but they were more likely to find it acceptable to use coarse language during their daily work and perhaps even in front of their wives and children. Perhaps the most concerned about the issues of swearing were the aspirational classes. Middling men hoping to accumulate wealth and rub elbows with elites would have self-censored the most. They could not afford to let a shit or fuck or twat escape their lips. Um, If it happened in front of social superiors, it marked them as lower class, uneducated, or uncouth. If it happened in front of social inferiors, um, it may give those inferiors the idea that they were equals. The horror. Um, So women from the aspirational classes were even more vulnerable to these mistakes. If they let a fart slip or yelled a god damn it um, after stubbing their toe in front of social superiors, they might as well just pack up and move to Siberia, right? Um, This is an exaggeration, of course, but um, the social consequences could be dire. Uh, Because the indiscretion not only marked her as uneducated, vulgar, and lower class, it also marked her as unladylike and unfeminine. So this is a double whammy. So I could go on about this stuff forever, um, but I'd like to save the rest for an episode on the history of euphemism because there's a lot of sexually repressed class war stuff to get into, I think. Um, Yeah. And and I think Mm -hmm. it's an episode of its own, honestly. Uh, But Melissa Moore goes all the way to the 21st century in her book. And one thing I wanted to mention about the more recent history of swearing is that during the 20th century, we see a new form of obscenity that emerges, and that is racial Mm -hmm. slurs. So this is especially Mm -hmm. true in the post-war. When I say post-war, I mean post-World War II, English-speaking world. Um, Racial slurs become um, more unacceptable um, during the civil rights movement. And, and at this point in time, um, we're recording in 2023 right now, the N-word is perhaps the most obscene thing that someone could say. Um, this perhaps calls for another episode on the history of racial slurs because it's so intertwined with slavery and racism and civil rights and, and more recently the racial justice movement. So let's put a pin in that as well. Um, so we have two more episodes, <laughs> ideas for you all. Um, Sarah, how do you want to to end this? Um, I mean, I I think this is completely fascinating. I love this. Um, it, it is such a good example of of context, right? Mm-hmm. That like, and a something that one of my historical actors would have said in the mid nineteenth century that would have been incredibly offensive just makes us kind of laugh today like we're like that's so silly that somebody would have been so offended by that it's such a good example of of how historical context works right that you Mm -hmm. really have to understand the culture and the time period in order to understand even the words that people used right and like not only the world of ideas which that is important like understanding masculinity during the civil war whatever Mm -hmm. in order to understand the word but also just their everyday lives right like Mm -hmm. in the medieval world people couldn't afford to be squeamish about shit 
at right. and piss because right. they were shitting and pissing everywhere. So yeah. like what like that wouldn't make sense in that world, right? Yeah. So yeah. even just like the material world really informs obscenity as well yeah. which i think is super interesting yeah it, it also just makes me think of of sort of social constructs and like um you were talking about sort of horrifying our friend <laughs> david <laughs> um about you know with your with your swearing and i did very much the same thing when i came home from college the first time and and was you know had, used swear words were just part of my everyday language as they still are today um but there's there is still a sense from those people who are shocked that there are that there's a propriety that there is a a natural propriety that you are sort of violating when you do that when i think understand having an understanding of history shows that like that propriety is just made by humans and we don't have to follow it right it's just constructive right yeah yeah and honestly i mean i feel like i already kind of knew that before i started studying history or there was something about sure um i feel like it's affected it's effective like um it's putting on airs when you're all like oh i'm too fancy to say Mm -hmm. shit or Mm -hmm. whatever i always had that feeling like that that is so strange Mm -hmm. um and it always felt very inauthentic Mm -hmm. to me um so i think even before i learned the history of it something about that inauthenticity really bothered mm-hmm. me. Um, but I think you're right that finding out the history of these things and, and how how shame and modesty and all of that stuff is socially constructed right. definitely sort of undergirds that thought and legitimizes what my already, you know, innate feelings yeah. were about the topic, you For know, sure. um, and gives me words to actually talk about it, yeah. right? Um so yeah, now I'm looking forward to these other two episodes that I've decided that I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, they they those both sound like really interesting. The racial slurs one, I think, is one that a, a lot of people would be really interested in. Right. Um, but it'd be hard because we'll have to it'd be not very hard. use yeah. them, right? Because they, cause mm-hmm. in our current context, they're so emotionally charged that they can do real harm, right? So yes. like, we're not yeah. going to use those words. Right. Um, but it's still, I think, worth talking about the history of them. Sure. Absolutely. So we're done. Uh, okay. Um, all right. Hold on. <laughs> so go to our website, digpodcast.org, to find transcripts and show, show notes, as well as um, mm-hmm. lesson plans Lots for of resources educators. for teachers. Uh, probably not using this one. <laughs> probably not using this one in high schools, right? But um, uh, And then you can check us out on Instagram and uh, Twitter, and we are launching a TikTok soon. (laughs) Just a couple middle-aged ladies on TikTok. (laughs) Me and Marissa. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be very, it'll be, it won't be cringe at all. Um, But, uh, and then you can find us, we have a Facebook group called Dig History Pod Squad, where we just sort of hang out. It's, it's very casual. It's not a super, super active group, just a few posts per week or whatever, um, or one or two posts per week, but um, it's kind of a cool place where you can meet other people mm-hmm. who have similar interests to you. Uh, and if you don't already support us on Patreon, please consider it. You can go to patreon.com backslash dig history. Bye. All right. We love you. Fuck Bye. off. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, especially. Oh, my God. I just said especially like I was 12 years old. And it makes a lot of sense if you consider the role the. Oh, my God. I can't talk. I can't write and I can't talk. Um, Family units shrunk to the. Oh my God. Like my lips stopped working.
when you get a paper cut, you're very... <laughs> I'm not gonna make it through this episode. But Lollards and Quakers, um... Oh my god. I love you. Sorry. The way that you are <laughs> wrote this is so complicated. I know. I'm sorry. It's um, okay. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna move that. Okay. Sorry that was that paragraph was rough. <laughs> um. Another version translated by John Wycliffe in the 1320s reads, "Quote: The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt on the part of the body, which by turds." No. Okay. Let me say that again. Quote: Lewd folk call the keeker call the keeker. Wait. Oh my God. Another version translated by John Wycliffe in the, see, that's in past tense. Called priapic or pri, should I say priapic, priapic? Um, How is what? this going to be? It's going to have to be bleeped. No, we are not bleeping it. We're marking it as explicit. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you could mark individual episodes as explicit. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> like that's gonna be. It's gonna make no sense. It's, it's gonna be like. I know. Buenos dias, world from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Went, and I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.